With every story we hear, listen to, read, or tell, we make basic human connections that help define who we are. Welcome to Afterwards Paranormal, the podcast devoted to those stories that tell us who we are when we're in the dark. Listen closely now. The dark is speaking, and the need to be heard never dies. Good evening, and welcome to Afterwards Paranormal Podcast. <laughs> Forgive me. I was channeling my inner Vincent Price. Let's try that again. Hello, and welcome to Afterwards Paranormal. I'm your host, Shelby. On this episode, we feature horror, that is, the writing of same. Why do some authors write romantic stories about boy meets girl and others Boy Eats Girl. We have three offerings by Darcy Coates, an author previously featured on the podcast. Miss Coates is a horror fiction writer and spins a delightfully grisly tale. We have three of her stories for you, Toon, Great Aunt Enid, and Hazard Lights. As for myself, I've been writing horror stories since I was a child. My awesome parents encouraged my dark side as long as I didn't write the stories in Mrs. Athey's fourth-grade class. Anymore. Evidently, she was concerned. She asked me why I liked writing the fouler side of human nature, and I simply answered, Because it's fun. That comment did not allay her fears for me a jot. But it's a good question. Why write horror? I found an article by Alexander Gordon Smith that stabs directly at the heart of the matter. Here are some excerpts from How Horror Saved My Life and Why Writing Horror is Good for the Soul by Alexander Gordon Smith. Writing horror almost killed me, but it saved my life, too. I'll start with the almost killing. Me, 11 years old and fresh from reading my first Stephen King, Pet Cemetery, and even the thought of that book still brings a grin to my face. I suddenly knew what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to be a horror writer. I was convinced that there was a conspiracy of horror authors who had witnessed the supernatural, a cabal of paranormal detectives who shared their experiences as fiction, and I wanted in. At 11 years old, I didn't just suspect the supernatural existed, I knew that it did. I had a desperate, unshakable faith in it. That was my modus operandi then to find real horror and then use that experience to create truly unforgettable stories. The other part of my plan involved a murder house, a flashlight, and my best friend Nigel. The house wasn't actually a murder house. It's just what we called it at school. A huge, crumbling, long-abandoned English manor home, about a 15-minute cycle ride from my house. It was at the center of so many of the spooky stories we all told each other at school. The witch that had cursed the house, the doll maker whose creation click-clacked down the corridors, hungry for souls, the serial killer convention that met there every year, and so on. Nobody knew the truth of this place, and I believed it was my job to find out. After much planning, the day finally came. I remember the house like it was yesterday. 
the eye-watering stench of rat piss, the hum of the wind, and the dark. It was a kind of darkness I'd never experienced before, absolute and unfriendly. The terror was something else, too. My whole body sang with it, because I knew without a shadow of a doubt that we were going to find something there. I guess that explains why it all fell apart so quickly. There was a point when we walked through a door to be greeted by the sound of a ticking clock. Rather shamefully, I ran down the corridor, screaming over my shoulder, You can have him! You can have Nigel! Just let me go! I was in such a state that I tried to exit, at speed, from the wrong window, free-falling from the mezzanine level and landing, thankfully, in mud. Another window, another floor, another day, and my tail might have ended right there. I knew then what horror meant to me. Horror was an adventure, pure and simple. Horror was that voyage into the unknown, the moment you open a door onto a brand new mystery. Horror was about accepting that there is far more to the world, to the universe, to ourselves, than the humdrum here and now. Every time I start reading, or writing, a new horror book, I feel like the genre has picked me up and hurled me. I feel like I am spinning towards some new reality. And the beautiful thing about it was that, to me, there was a chance it could all be real. Horror has that power no matter how old you are, I think. You could be the most rational human being in existence, but there will still be times when you read a scary story or watch a movie, and you can feel those truths and assumptions you've built your whole life on start to crumble. I don't know anyone who hasn't felt that way at some point, lying in bed after watching a horror movie, knowing that there is no monster under the bed, knowing that there is no serial killer in the wardrobe, knowing that there is no ghost about to float down from the ceiling, but at the same time, knowing, for a fact, that there is some terrible ghost monster in the room and you are about to die the most gruesome death of all time. Yes, it's a horrible feeling, but it's amazing, too, because right there is that childhood you, the one who believes anything can happen. For those few minutes, or hours, until you drift into an uneasy sleep, the rules of the universe have fundamentally changed. Horror does that. It makes the impossible possible. It opens up our minds again. Something weird happens when you write about your worst fears, even if you're writing fiction. They stop being these unfathomably, impossibly huge things that hide in the shadowy corners of your mind. They become words. They become concrete, or at least paper. They lose some of their power, because when they're laid down like that, then you have control. If you want, you can pick up those stories and tear them into pieces. You can set fire to them, flush them down the toilet. They're yours to deal with however you want. Horror makes us children again, in the best possible way. We're incredibly resilient when we're kids, because our imaginations are so vast, so powerful, they cannot be defeated. When we go through bad things, we have the emotional intelligence to recover, because we know that anything can happen. If there are monsters under the bed, then there can be miracles, too. There can be magic. There can be heroes. We understand that we are those heroes. When we write horror, or read it, or watch it, we're children again, and the world feels huge and full of infinite possibility. When I'm lying there, waiting for the monster's hand to creep out from under the bed, or the ghostly face to push down from the ceiling, my body once again singing with terror, I'm always grinning.
Oh, and for those who were wondering, Nigel made it out of the murder house, too. He'd only started screaming because I was holding the flashlight, and I'd just run off and left him in the dark. We didn't speak much after that. Alexander Gordon Smith lives in Norwich, England. He is the author of the Escape from the Furnace and Hellraiser series. I really like what Mr. Smith had to say about horror writing. It's so true. It's certainly true for me. And I think it's time to put my money where my mouth is. The story about the murder house reminded me of an experience I had as a child. I'm going to write it up as a story and read it on the podcast next week. If anybody else would like to give it a try, there's an afterwards paranormal podcast mug in your future. Send it in. You are listening to Afterwards Paranormal, the podcast that offers you dark tales from literature, lore, and you, the listener. If you are interested in contributing stories to the show, please stay tuned after the story for details. Darcy Coates' work has been called atmospheric horror, stories that rely on location and emotional, mental, and psychological states. Instead of focusing on action sequences and gore, Coates concentrates on feeling, specifically feelings of unease. I've always preferred books that build dread and leave me warily watching the darkest corners of my room, she says. When I write, any gore is a byproduct of the story, not the reason for it. I've always wanted to capture the feeling you have when you're outdoors at night and someone starts to tell eerie campfire stories. A special kind of dread rises up, the kind that's both addictive and consuming. Dread isn't the only through line that connects Coates' work. One thread that shows up repeatedly in my books is finding home, Coates says. Whether home is a physical location to feel safe at, or a family, or friends who are as good as family, most of my books have a character who is searching for something and conclude with them finding it, though often not in the form they expected. You can find out more about Miss Coates and her writing at www.darcycoates.com. And now, Tune by Darcy Coates. Dan woke with a song looping through his mind. Its tune, low and slow, seemed familiar. He lay on his back for a few moments, listening to the notes and trying to place where he'd heard it before. It felt connected to his childhood. Is it from a kid's TV show, maybe? He glanced to his left. His girlfriend Jenny was still asleep. He moved to Waker, then remembered it was Saturday, and she could sleep in. Dan sighed and rolled out of the bed, slipped his shoes on, and shuffled to the bathroom. As he brushed his teeth, he found himself tapping his left hand on the sink in time with the song's beats. It was bothering him that he couldn't place it. It had a very specific tune, and he knew it meant something, or was used for something, or started something. But what? By the time Jenny came out of the bedroom, Dan was already nearing the end of his second bowl of cereal. She bent low over the table to see his face and give him a warm smile. What's buzzing around your bonnet this morning? Hmm? You look really preoccupied with something, and I know serial nutritional information can't hold your attention that thoroughly. Dan laughed and replaced the cereal box on the table. Sorry, I've just got a song in my head. 
I'm trying to figure out where it's come from. Sing some for me. I might recognize it. Dan had never been at all musically inclined. He couldn't remember words, hold a tune, or recognize major keys from minor. The song in his head was so intricate and unique that he was certain he wouldn't be able to express it. But as he hummed the notes, he felt great surprise and pleasure as it perfectly matched what was in his head. Oh, don't sing any more, Jenny said after a moment. Her expression had changed to one of wary distaste. It's an awful song. Dan cut the tune short, feeling a surge of frustration. It felt somehow disrespectful and wrong not to complete the tune, like only singing half of the national anthem. Why? Do you know what it is? No, Jenny said, sitting opposite him and pouring herself a bowl of cereal. Her face was still scrunched up as though she'd smelt something bad. It's just really depressing, like a funeral dirge, but worse. I think I remember it from when I was a kid, like from a children's TV show or something. Jenny laughed at that, though the sound wasn't as warm as Dan normally found it. Wow, it would have to be a pretty rotten kids' show to include something like that. Come on, let's not talk about it anymore. What have you got planned for today? I promised Mom I'd visit her to change a busted light bulb. Dan drained the last dregs from his bowl to avoid speaking again. The song was still cycling through his mind, and he felt certain that if he could just focus on it for long enough, he would remember where he knew it from. After Jenny had finished her breakfast, Dan kissed her goodbye and headed for the car. He only lived five minutes away from his mother, which he was grateful for. She was getting older, and little things like replacing light bulbs and mowing the lawn were becoming increasingly difficult for her. As he drove, he turned on the radio. He recognized a song that came on as a country ballad that he'd always enjoyed before, but on that day, it seemed impossibly shallow and too preppy to tolerate. He turned off the radio and let the tune in his head wash over him again. That's a real song, he found himself thinking as the notes looped endlessly through his mind. It's got depth and heart and meaning. By the time he reached his mother's house, he was humming the song again and enjoying the way he could reproduce the chords perfectly. Dan's mother greeted him with a hug and a warm kiss. He wasn't sure if he was still growing or if she was shrinking, but she seemed to be getting smaller with each visit. She led him into the kitchen where the bulb above the sink had blown the night before. This'll be fixed in a jiffy, Dan said, drawing a chair under the light while his mother put the kettle on. Even though the task would only take him a moment, Dan knew he wasn't likely to leave the house for a solid hour or two. His mother always loved company, and he could spend an entire afternoon talking to her about trivial matters and gossiping while they ate biscuits and drank tea. As he unscrewed the light bulb, Dan began humming the tune again. The kettle finished boiling, but his mother didn't pour the water into the cups. He finished screwing in the light, then hopped down from his chair to test the switch. The light came on without a problem, and Dan turned to his mother with a huge smile. How about that? He realized something was wrong as soon as he caught a glimpse of his mother's face. Blood had drained from her skin, and her eyes were wide and tear-filled. Dan rushed to her and tried to help her into a seat. Are you okay? What happened? Do you feel dizzy? You're singing that song again, was all she said. She let Dan ease her into the kitchen chair, and he hurried to make her a cup of tea. 
She seemed to be gathering her thoughts, and when Dan drew up a chair next to her, she took a deep and seemingly resolved breath. Do you know what you were humming? No, I woke up with it in my head this morning. I kind of remember it from when I was a kid, but I can't recall what it is. It's an old Scandinavian morning song. His mother traced patterns on the table's wood with her index finger and seemed to be picking her words carefully. It's not really ever sung anymore, even in Scandinavia. I didn't recognize it. Your great-aunt did. She grew up in Scandinavia, you remember? She heard you the second time you began humming it and told me what it was. Second time? Yes, you've only sung it twice. Once when you were five and again when you were eight. His mother raised her eyes, which flickered uncertainly over his face. The first time was the morning your grandfather passed away. The second was the day before your father died. Dan stared at his mother, unsure of what to say, unsure of what could be said, as the song looped through his head relentlessly. Next, Great Aunt Enid. Jacob sat in his car, staring at the house's front. Single-story and narrow, it looked as though it could only hold three or four rooms. The plants in the front garden were almost dead, save for a bunch of straggling weeds that had survived under the dripping tap. The house's windows were all blinded with dark shutters, and the walls were stained from age. And yet... It still held hints of nostalgia. Jacob could picture flowers filling the front garden and imagine the large, now lifeless elm tree full of bright green leaves in early spring. He remembered his great-aunt, her blue eyes shining behind her glasses as she held his hand and walked him to the park. These twenty years haven't been kind to the house. What will they have done to Aunt Enid? Jacob sucked in a breath and stepped out of his car. The leaves crunched under his boots as he crossed the road and pushed open the ancient metal gate. It whined on its hinges and stuck at the halfway point. Jacob skirted it and followed the blackened pathway to where the house's front door, tall and faded, sat in the off-white plaster walls. He rapped on the door and listened for the sounds of footsteps. Instead, a voice cracked and raspy called, Come in! Jacob paused before opening the door. He knew almost nothing about his great-aunt, save for a handful of bright childhood memories, walking with her to the shops, coloring in books she'd bought for him, and being given a handful of lollies when his parents collected him to go home. He knew he'd spent a lot of time at her house as a toddler, but one day the visits had just stopped. Jacob had almost forgotten about her until, cleaning out his mother's attic the weekend before, He'd come across a photo of his deceased grandmother and great-aunt sitting together. He asked his parents about her, but they seemed reluctant to tell him what had happened. 
From what he could work out based on their evasive answers and uncomfortable pauses, some sort of falling out had occurred between Aunt Enid and the rest of his family. Haven't heard from her in decades, his father had said, and his mother had added in an unusually sour tone, she's probably still holed up in that house. It hadn't been hard to track down her details. She'd lived in the building for her entire adult life. What had been strange, though, was how isolated she seemed. None of Jacob's cousins or uncles would talk about her, and if they did, they never said much except that she lived alone and didn't have friends. That had struck Jacob as wrong in many ways. No matter what the disagreement had been about, an elderly lady living alone needed some sort of company, even if it's just a visit from a long-forgotten grandnephew. Jacob opened the door. It caught on the mat lining the hallway, and he had to shove it to get it to move. Inside, the house had a strange musty smell with undertones of mildew. A grandfather clock somewhere farther in the building ticked. Jacob hesitated on the mat, then the voice repeated, Come in! He remembered Aunt Enid's voice as being melodic and smooth and her having a good strong laugh. What called to him was dry and raspy. I was right. She's not well. I can't believe my family would leave her here like this. She should have someone check on her a few times a week at least. Jacob closed the door behind himself and followed the hallway. The house hadn't looked large from the outside, but the hall went on much further than he'd expected before it opened into a sitting room. His Aunt Enid sat in the chair under the window. At first glance, she looked like a shadow. Her black dress pooled around her feet, and her once black hair, which had aged to steel gray, hung around her face in a long, greasy sheet. She sat immobile, her hands lying limply in her lap, her face turned toward the discolored glass. Jacob cleared his throat. Aunt Enid? he asked, taking a step into the room. Hi, it's me. Jacob, she said, her aged, wrinkled mouth framing the word carefully. I didn't expect to see you again. Though her hand stayed limp in her lap, she turned her torso and head towards him, moving slowly, as though her joints were rusty. Jacob smiled awkwardly. Uh, yeah, it's, it's good to see you again. Her eyes were milky white, blind. Why didn't anyone tell me? How can she possibly be living alone like this? Enid raised one of her hands and indicated to the seat opposite. The hand was curled like a bird's claw, so aged and stiff with arthritis that it was clearly difficult to move. Jacob sat in the chair, trying to ignore how dusty and stained it was. He leaned forward, cleared his throat, and tried to inject some life into his voice. I have so many happy memories of visiting you as a child. I'm sorry we lost touch. Mm-hmm. Enid's head had followed his movements, even though Jacob knew she couldn't see him. Your family didn't agree with some of my choices. Curiosity gnawed at Jacob. No one had given a reason for the rift, but he knew it had to be dramatic. His family was generally tight-knit. But to outright ignore his aging great-aunt? He couldn't believe it. Choices? he prompted. She smiled exposing a row of surprisingly straight white teeth. Dentures, surely. Choices you wouldn't even consider.
she said, and turned back to stare out the window. Jacob wondered if that was how she passed her days, staring blindly into the yard for hours on end until hunger or thirst drove her into movement. Choices you wouldn't even imagine could exist. The unnatural smile again stretched her wrinkled lips until they cracked. What could she possibly mean? What sort of choices did she have to make? Jacob had started to feel uncomfortable, so he changed the subject to the main purpose of his visit. The sentiment was difficult to express, so he chose his words carefully. Enid, do you have anyone to visit you? Maybe a neighbor who could pop in every few days? Enid acted as though she hadn't heard him. Her face had taken on a strange, intense expression as she stared out the window, and her voice dropped to a whisper. It was a different time back then, when you were offered something impossible. You didn't always question it. Jacob stared at his clasped hands. If, if it's okay with you, I was thinking I could drop by every now and then. I work at a store only about ten minutes away, so if you'd like some company, I could come by after my shifts. Jacob, she said, as though reminding herself of his name. Do as your family did. It's no good for you to spend time with those who have bartered with their souls. It's no trouble. Jacob said hurriedly as his aunt tried to rise from her chair. Really, it would be nice to see more of you, and, and I mean if anything were to happen. <laughs> it was a cold, hollow laugh. Enid had gotten to her feet and moved around her chair. She was walking strangely, as though her joints had frozen while she sat. Movement on the floor caught Jacob's eyes, and he saw fleshy white objects that had fallen from the folds of his great aunt's dress— they squirmed on the floor. Surely those aren't maggots. Aunt Enid turned her head to stare at Jacob, and he realized, with a jolt, that she could see him, despite the bleached white eyes. No, she said, scraping towards him laboriously. You'll do better to spend your time with the living. And finally, the story, Hazard Lights. Maria leaned against the car door and stared through the window at the harsh white light spaced along the Lane Cove Tunnel. The driver kept trying to start a conversation, but she had caught a red-eye flight and was beyond exhausted. All she wanted to do was get to her hotel and sleep for a lifetime. The traffic wasn't cooperating, though. It had been gridlocked for the last twenty minutes, and in the tunnel it seemed even worse. Maria didn't think they'd moved more than ten meters in the last five minutes. Bad traffic today, yeah? The taxi driver, a cheerful man with a thick black beard, beamed at her in the rear-vision mirror, and Maria mustered a thin smile. Uh-huh. Haven't seen it this bad in months. Must be a breakdown ahead. Mm-hmm. 
Maria turned to look out of the opposite window, where she could see five other car lanes, two more going in their direction, and the other three going the opposite, all forced to a halt. Every now and then, a car would crawl a few inches closer to its leader, as though that would make any sort of difference. The radio came to life with a crackle, and Maria jumped. She'd nearly fallen asleep. We are currently experiencing an emergency situation, the voice on the radio said, and Maria leaned forward to listen to it. Her driver hadn't touched the radio, she knew, by the way his face had gone pale. However, because the tunnel dipped below ground to carry cars from one side of the harbor to the other, the control room had the ability to activate the car's radios in an emergency. Remain in your vehicle, the voice said. He sounded flustered and panicky, though he was clearly reading from a script. Extinguish all lights and remain silent. Assistance will be sent as soon as possible. The radio fell silent. Maria looked to her taxi driver, whose face had lost almost all color. He turned the key in the ignition, powering the car down and killing its lights. Around her, other cars were also being turned off. Maria swiveled in her seat to look behind her. She thought she could hear noises coming from deeper in the tunnel. Then the multitude of lights spaced along the concrete walls whined and died, plunging them into complete darkness. Someone shrieked, and car doors slammed. A handful of headlights were still on, and Maria tried to see what was happening through the limited glow, but everything was a mess of shadows and shapes. The radio crackled for a second time, and the voice returned. Its panic had risen to a nearly hysterical pitch, and he didn't seem to be reading from a script any longer. They, they say you should remain in your cars, but, but they're, st- they're still finding you. Don't run. Don't bother. They'll catch you. They're spreading so fast. I've never seen or heard of anything like this before. Oh, geez, I'm, I'm so, I'm so sorry. Stay in your cars. Stay. The voice broke off with a gasp, and Maria heard a banging noise in the distance, followed by what sounded like metal being twisted and torn. The radio clicked off. Maria sat frozen in her seat as she stared at her driver. A car a few rows ahead turned on its hazard lights, and the flashing red reflected off the driver's face as he stared back. Then the screams started. Maria turned to look behind them and saw shapes, people, running between the cars. It was more than panic. It was pandemonium. Several figures shoved against her taxi as they ran past, making it sway. Maria placed one hand on the car door preparing to exit and join the crowd, but she stopped when she caught sight of other, larger shapes farther back in the tunnel. They were barely visible in the blinking hazard light, but they were definitely not human. The shapes moved on all fours, dexterously climbing over cars and scuttling along the tunnel walls. Their limbs had at least four joints each, and they were larger than an average man. They snatched up the fleeing humans so quickly that the motions were a blur. Maria heard the crackles and snaps of breaking bones underneath the screams. Glass smashed as the creatures pounded through car windows. Get down, the taxi driver hissed, shoving Maria out of her seat so that she was kneeling on the footwell. She flattened herself as much as she could, trying to breathe through her mouth to minimize the noise. The taxi driver sunk back into his seat, his eyes wide as he tried not to shake. From her position, Maria could still see the figures racing past the windows and feel the impact as they bumped the car. 
Then the taxi shuddered as something large and heavy landed on it, and one of the running figures by her window was pulled from view with a gurgling shriek. Maria pressed her hand over her mouth and breath. They were enveloped by silence for a second. Then there was a horrific crash as the windshield was broken by a long, tough limb. The taxi driver barely managed half a scream before he was torn out of his seat and pulled through a hole in the windshield. His voice choked off. Then dark liquid splashed across the window above Maria. The sounds were changing as the screams faded into the distance. The human cacophony was replaced by steady, loud thuds as the creatures climbed over the cars, making snapping noises and chewing, tearing sounds. Maria squeezed her eyes closed so that she wouldn't have to watch the shadows move past the window. She kept still until the noises died into the distance and were eventually entirely extinguished. Her muscles ached from the cramped position. Outside, the tunnel remained dark except for the hazard lights, which continued to bathe the area in intermittent flashes of red. She was surrounded in near-perfect silence. No footsteps, voices, thudding limbs, or tearing flesh. Maria shook as she slowly, cautiously rose to her knees. She peeked through the car's window between the streaks of blood, to see that the tunnel seemed empty. So did the cars. Their human occupants had been stripped from them, pulled through broken windows or holes that had been carved in the metal. Maria alone had been spared, thanks to her hiding place. I've got to leave before those creatures come back. There should be emergency exits placed along the walls. They should be too small for those things to fit through easily. If I can just get to one of them. Maria opened her door slowly and silently. The car's interior lights automatically turned on in response, and Maria looked out, frozen in terror, as a dozen pairs of reflective globe-like eyes turned towards her. Well, those are our tales for this episode. I hope you enjoyed them. I don't hear enough from you guys. You need to let me know what stories you like, what stories you don't like, if there's something you want changed about the podcast, and particularly if you have ideas for stories or stories themselves. And don't forget, if you write a little story and send it in this week, you will be the recipient of an Afterwards Paranormal mug. You can send comments, stories, or funny cartoons to afterwardsstories at gmail.com or you can post on the Facebook page. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Afterwards Paranormal. I've been your host, Shelby. And as always, I leave the last words for you. Thank you for listening to Afterwards Paranormal Podcast. Please join us on Patreon and Facebook. You can listen to Afterwards Paranormal on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Contact us at afterwardsstories at gmail.com. And remember, the need to be heard never dies.